Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Have your Bible, and I know you do. Join me in the book of Matthew, the 24th chapter. It was in the sophomore year of my college education, 1970, the spring, and there was quite a stir on our campus. The stir was created by the visitation of a man who had been a Mississippi riverboat captain, quite a gambler, quite a ladies' man, who came to know Jesus and his life was radically turned around. He went to study so that he could be prepared to teach the Bible and preach the Word of God. And in the process, he began to work on the staff of what was then known as Campus Crusade for Christ. He also wrote a book entitled The Late Great Planet Earth. His name, many of you know the name, Hal Lindsey. And Hal Lindsey still is alive today. He's written many more books, but that book was really his magnum opus, if you will, his greatest work, and has influenced a lot of people, including myself. I remember being invited by, I'm not sure which of my friends, but many, if not most of my friends, had heard that he was on our campus. And he was going to be there for a series of teachings at the noon hour. I went to the ballroom in the student center. It held about 2,000 people. Every seat was taken. Students were circling around the walls to hear what this man had to say. And a revival broke out on our campus just because of the teaching about the second coming of Jesus Christ. About that time, while I was serving as a leader of a Young Life Club in Memphis, we had a songbook, and one of the songs that had been written the year before Hal Lindsey wrote his book was by a man named Larry Norman. Norman is described in his biography as one of the pioneers in Christian contemporary music. And his signature song, as far as I'm concerned, is simply entitled, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. Begins by, I want to sing it, but I'm not going to. I'll spare you that. <laughs> Life was filled with guns and wars, and children were trampled on the ground. I wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill, one disappears, and the other stands still. I wish we all had been ready. And what we're going to consider today and continue to consider in succeeding Sundays, God willing, is how we get ready. So when Jesus does come back, we won't be caught off guard. We will be ready to meet him when he calls us to meet him in the air, whether it's from our graves or from humanity because we're alive at that time. With that having been said, I'd like to read this passage of Scripture and comment on it as I read it in the interest of time. I'm going to read the verses that introduce this sermon. It's actually a sermon, if you will, a teaching. It's called by scholars the Olivet Discourse because it was Jesus in a sense fulfilling a prophecy or at least foreshadowing a prophecy found in the book of Zechariah 14.4, where the Bible says that when the Messiah returns in his second advent to the world, he will touch down on the Mount of Olives and the mountain will split. So Jesus is with his apostles, his disciples, if you will. And please understand, all the apostles were disciples before they were singled out by Christ to become one of his apostles. Every believer in Christ, according to the New Testament, is designed to be a disciple of Christ, which simply means an apprentice to Jesus Christ, trusting Christ to lead him or her in the way he or she 
should go. Verse one of chapter 24 says, and Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. I was astonished actually this week. I had done some search, research last week for the message, but I did a little more research this week about the size of the temple. The temple proper was not very large actually. But what I discovered was the temple complex, if you will, the campus we would call it today, was incredibly large. The temple was known as Herod's temple. It was he who had worked and worked and worked to help that sacred building to become the eighth wonder of the world. It was magnificent. The walls surrounding the temple were built out of white marble that from a distance gleamed in the sunlight. This white marble was made of 67 foot long, believe me, of slabs of marble. 18 feet high, 12 feet deep. That's a big piece of rock, isn't it? It was beautiful. There were gold-plated things all over, silver-plated things all over that temple area. But the temple itself, listen, was 40 acres, the grounds. Now, I often wondered how Jesus could be clearing the temple of money changers. Remember that? People selling things and getting proper money in the hands of Jews who had come from all over the world to pay their temple tax. And I wondered how he could do that and people not know about it who were more or less in charge. It could be understood when you understand the size of that area. Incredible. It was. Beautiful. It was. It was a magnificent piece of architecture. But Jesus was leaving it Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 12, 6, he said about himself, there is greater than the temple here. About whom was he speaking? He was speaking about himself. And he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again in the book of John chapter two. And then what did his detractors say? Are you saying that you can rebuild this temple if it's destroyed in three days when it took 46 years for Herod to do it? Well, they didn't get it, did they? They didn't understand. But Jesus left it and never looked back. He was going away. Verse two says, and he answered and said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? Two questions are asked here. It looks like three in our English Bibles, but I'll explain that in just a moment. The first of which is, when will this happen? We're always curious about pending events of significance. And there was no more significant event in the minds of these people, these disciples, because they had, to a degree, a distorted picture of who Jesus was. They had bought into the cultural idea that when the Messiah came, he would be a military political leader. Jesus was busy trying to dispel that distortion of who the Messiah was, of course. And they wanted to know when because they were close to the Messiah. They were in the inner circle and undoubtedly in their own minds, they thought it's gonna be good for us when Messiah establishes his kingdom here on earth. And by the way, as an aside, let me say, it's gonna be wonderful for them. It's gonna be wonderful for you too, if you know Jesus, when he comes again to establish his kingdom here on earth. Words fail me because I don't even know how mighty and powerful that day will be and what it will be like. When will it be? We all want to know when, don't we? How many of you have talked to somebody in the last month about the second coming of Christ? A lot of you have, I know. 
Lots of you have. When? He goes on to ask the second question. What will be the sign? That's the second question. You could put your question mark there. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The grammar, and I don't want to be technical here, but in order for me to be true to the teaching of Christ here would indicate that the sign of Christ's coming and the end of the age are like a package deal in the mind of these people. So let me stop here just a moment. What is the sign of your coming? And also the end of the age. I want to talk again. I spoke briefly last week. It's important that I share this to reiterate it and reinforce it in your minds. The word translated coming of all the gospel writers, Matthew is the only one who uses this word from the mouth of Jesus. And all of the references, four of them, are found here in this 24th chapter of Matthew. It was a word that was used outside the New Testament, for instance, of a dignitary, more than a simple dignitary, actually a one who would be the absolute ruler of a city that he was entering and his coming was viewed with great expectation and not only great expectation, but also great reverence for such a person. And certainly that kind of word works for Jesus, doesn't it? Divine visitation is the idea. Helpful coming. Both of those fit Christ, do they not? You can see why the Holy Spirit chose this word. And then the last phrase, the end of the age. Here again, Matthew is the only one of the gospel writers who records these words of Jesus. The end of the age. What is meant by the end of the age? It has two shades of meaning. One means the end of time and space. The end of the world as we know it. That's part of what's conveyed in this. But also it has to do with the last judgment of God upon mankind. So it's a sobering concept for sure. And they wanted to know about those two things. So Jesus obliges them and he's obliging us today. Aren't you glad that we have the word of God? Aren't you glad we have the Holy Spirit to enlighten us and convince us of the truths in scripture? And Jesus begins by talking about, with regard to the what, he's talking about the matter of deception that will characterize the lead up to the great tribulation, if you will. And if you will look at verse eight, before we look at verses four and five, which talk about the deception, look at verse eight where the scripture says, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. And that is referring the all these things is a reference to what we see in verses four through seven. So keep that in mind. The first of which would include deception. Look at verse four. And Jesus answered and said to them, see, and the word see would be translated, keep on seeing to it, that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. We just read from Luke 21. And Luke has these words, I am he, is what he says. I am he. And then in that chapter, he goes on to say, the time is at hand. This is what these false teachers or false Christs will say. The time is at hand. Do not go after them, is what Jesus says. And may I interpret this a little bit for us? This is really what he's saying. Don't even think about going after these false teachers. Keep that in mind as well. See to it that no one misleads you for many will come in my name saying I am the Christ and will mislead many. The word mislead means, and I'm gonna colloquialize it, put it in a term we can really understand. It means 
Don't let anyone trick you. You know, the devil has a big bag of tricks. And one of his favorite tricks from the get-go, when the church was first formed, was to order an all-out assault on the truth of God by sending out no telling how many false teachers. And this is characteristic of the time between the establishment of the, ch of the church and the end of the age where these false teachers flood the church and emphasize certain things in the church. Let me give you three characteristics of these false teachers. One is that they are authoritative, if not authoritarian, but they have such an authoritative air about them that people are drawn to them. It's true, isn't it? That we like to be around people who know what they believe and are sure of it and have confidence as a result. Well, these people, they come allegedly in the name of Jesus Christ. But really, they're not coming in the name of Jesus, are they? Rather, they are coming in their own name when you get right down to it, when you dig deeply enough. And one of the things is true of false Christs and false teachers and false prophets is that they have an authoritative air about them. And typically, as I said, authoritarian. We know Jesus is the ultimate authoritative person. Remember when he concludes the Sermon on the Mount in this Gospel of Matthew? It says the people were astonished at his teaching because he did not teach like their teachers, the scribes. He did not teach like they taught. He taught as one with authority. Jesus holds the authority. And the authority is found in the Word of God too. And anyone who portrays himself or herself as someone who is a true teacher and even is audacious enough to say, I'm Christ, that person is not a person who's going to really teach the Bible. Maybe use various proof texts to build a case, but it's not the case. But they're authoritative. Also, they are impressive. If you'll look to verse 24, I'm jumping ahead to what we'll probably be looking at next Sunday. Verse 24, a continuation of what's been called Sermon of, of the Sign. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Another thing that I've noticed about people that I suspect are false teachers and it's not hard to figure it out. If you listen to them long enough and you measure what they say by what the Bible says, they're easily detected. And we need to be about that. But they're really impressive in the way they look, the way they dress. It's not right, wrong to take the best care of the body God gave you. I hope you're doing that. And clean it up and give the best presentation of you you can, not for your glory, but so that the name of the Lord won't be looked down upon, right? But the idea of their impressive nature is seen in the fact they do signs and wonders. Now, do people who represent Jesus ever do signs and wonders? Well, yeah. Read about Paul. Read about some of the others who are mentioned in Scripture. But they're not about themselves. This is the bottom line about a true teacher of the Word of God, a true prophet of God. Such people ought to be earmarked by the Spirit of God as humble people. In 1 Peter chapter 5, what I consider my favorite teaching, which I've tried to model my life after as an elder pastor in the church. Peter concludes that little section, one through five or six. He says this, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that in due time he may exalt you. So authoritative, we should be 
authoritative in a secondary way, not a primary way. Where does our authority come from? Jesus gives those who are under shepherds and those who are given a responsibility to be speaking the life and word of Christ, gives them authority. But the authority is not in themselves. It's in the word of God by the Holy Spirit of God. And there is an impression that is left when people really are that kind of teacher or preacher. There is an impression that's left but it's the impression of Jesus Christ upon them as opposed to the individual who is doing the teaching of the speaking. And they are persuasive people also because they are able to mislead people. They're able to trick people. They're able to hoodwink people. And they, like their ultimate master, address, the, address themselves as angels of light. They masquerade in that way. So deceptions are part and parcel of this time leading up to the end of time. Do you see that? And we see it all around us. Let's look at another word. This is helping me to remember and maybe will help you to remember a little bit more fully. And that is the word disasters. And these are found in verses six and seven. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. Let me stop right here for a moment. Out of curiosity, I tried to discover how many wars have been recorded in history. And I found out 10,624 wars as of yesterday have taken place. There are about 40 being waged now, most of which are in the Southern Hemisphere, and most of which are in Africa or Asia, those continents. And those wars almost exclusively are civil wars. They're over territorial rights as far as those countries and who gets what in those countries are concerned. What about rumors of wars? Have any of you heard anything about the Ukraine and Russia? You can't listen to the news without learning that or read your phone or look online. Yeah, that's the truth. Wars and rumors of wars. Another kind of disaster, and wars are terrible, aren't they? General Sherman was right when he said war is hell. As he marched across Atlanta and into Georgia burning it down. See that you are not frightened for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. I must stop here for just a moment. Here again, Jesus uses the same word which he used in verse four. Keep on seeing to it that you are not frightened. Why couldn't, wouldn't we be frightened when we hear about wars and rumors of wars, some of you have been in combat, combat and you know what that's like. It's hellish to say the least. The horror of it, the terror of it, the fear of it. But what does the word of God say? Jesus says, don't be afraid. And then he gives the reasons for these things must take place, but that is not yet the end. It's so easy for us to overlook certain parts of the Bible. This seems like so innocent a conclusion to that verse. For those things must take place. Why must they take place? Because we have a sovereign God. Do you know what that means? Do you know what I'm trying to say when I speak we have a sovereign God? We have a God who superintends all matters. All matters, not just some. He's not a disinterested God. He is the God of this world and he has a plan and he looks over all the details of this world. For those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. And then in verse seven, we're given a little bit more light on the question as why we're not to be afraid. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And here again, it doesn't appear to our English reading eyes what is said here. In fact, this seems like 
an active voice, verb, will rise. Nations will be a part of their rising up. But actually, in the original language, this is what it literally says. Nation will be lifted up against nation. Now, we know wars. James talks about in chapter 4, we war because we want things which don't belong to us. That's been verified today by the observation that most of the wars in the world are over territorial rights. It's what you have that I believe belongs to me or what you have that I want to belong to me. Isn't that true? And we have little skirmishes all the time in our homes, in our workplace, in our community, even in our church at times because we're selfish. But nation, that, Satan is the one who fosters hatred. God doesn't do that. Satan is the one who stirs up men to go to war. The Lord isn't the, isn't the motivator of those kind of criminal things that go on in war. But what we do know is the Lord is in charge even of the devil when you read the Bible carefully. I've said this before a hundred times probably, but I'll say it again today. I love what Martin Luther said about Satan. He said, Satan is God's devil. He belongs to God. And so this is part of God's plan unfolding. The longer I live and the more I study the word of God, it becomes absolutely clear to me that God causes all things to work together for, the, for him who loves God and is a called according to his purpose. Even things as frightful and awful as wars and rumors of wars. God's purpose is unfolding before our very eyes. So there are political, military kinds of disasters in the form of wars. There are also social implications that grow out of wars. And in various places, there will be famines. And Luke adds another thing that Jesus says, plagues and famines. Famines. Let's stop here just a moment. I did a little research on this subject about the state of famines in the world. And I should have put two and two together, but I, I didn't. What I discovered was the regions of the world which are suffering the greatest famines. For instance, South Sudan, Yemen, Syria, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Nigeria. These are the five top areas suffering famine. They all find themselves in a state of civil war. It comes with the territory, doesn't it? Where there is war, there is going to be this kind of lack of food. The lack of food or the food itself is used as a weapon against people. And then plagues. Anybody here know anything about a plague? We have been plagued by COVID, haven't we? For the last, I can't even tell you how long it's been. It's been too long. That much I do know. What's this year? 2022? 19 is when it got its name. So a little over two years. It's been riding roughshod over us, haven't? And casting fear in the hearts of us. And we need to understand we need to respect illness, but we don't need to fear it because fear is not what God wants us in addressing anything that we face in our lives. Jesus said, remember when he was mistaken for a ghost, some kind of haint walking on the surface of the Sea of Galilee in the darkness of night and the disciples are in the boat and they're saying, that looks like a ghost. And they thought that area was haunted and it might have had some spirits. I don't know. But then someone said, it's the Lord. And what does Peter do? Peter says, Lord, can I come? He does. He jumps out and goes to the Lord. And you know the rest of the story. 
And he says, fear not, it is I. When Jesus is in the boat, the boat won't sink and the storm won't last forever. Isn't that cool? It's true, isn't it? Right on. And we have that kind of relationship with Jesus. To have that kind of walk with the Lord. We don't have to be afraid. It doesn't mean that we don't have to be cautious. We need to be wise about things. But we also don't need to fall into the trap of great fear. Not to be terrified. We're not to be tricked by false teachers. At the same time, we're not to be terrified by these events. Earthquakes, that would be a natural event. And I did my research on this too and discovered that yesterday there were two areas in the world which tied for first as far as a registered earthquake was concerned. 5.1 on the Richter scale. In order to make that list daily, it has to be at least in terms of a concern, 4.0 on the Richter scale. And when you jump a whole number, it means it's 10 times greater, 5.0. 5.1 was the number for both of these places. One Trinidad, not too far from here, really, geographical. The other a set of islands, part of New Zealand, but a smaller set of islands, the Kermetic, I believe is the proper pronunciation. Both of those areas had a 5.1 yesterday. Earthquakes. Any of you been in an earthquake that you could feel? Maybe a little tremor, but I mean, have you been in a major earthquake where things were just shaking all over the place and you were shaking more than the things were because you were afraid? Well, that's another thing that is characteristic, Jesus says. And we've already looked at verse eight, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now, let me stop here just a moment. Every woman who has born a child today knows what we will never know, men. Aren't you glad? <laughs> Unbelievable. Women are far superior in their stamina and strength to us as men, I think, and what, what they put up with to bear children. Unreal. Listen to what Jesus says. And in this particular section of scripture, really, when he uses this image of birth pangs, he's talking about contractions. He says, this is the beginning of contractions as we move toward the end of time and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 16, 21, listen what Jesus says. Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more. Some of you men, men can testify. When you were in the birthing room with your wife, when she gave birth to your first child, and she wanted to tear you from one limb to the other. She probably threatened you. Some of them did at least. Don't you ever look at me again. Don't you touch me again. But when the baby is born, isn't it amazing? It's just like a switch. Goes off and another one comes on. She remembers the anguish no more. Why? For joy that a child has been born into the world. This is a picture Jesus chooses to help us when we think about the fears that creep up in our hearts when we think about wars and rumors of wars, famines and plagues and earthquakes, all those things. And we know there is joy that comes in the morning. We have moments of darkness and following Christ, as we're going to see, is not for the faint of heart. But we know what God says about that too. The next word, we've looked at deception, we've looked at disaster, now we're going to look at defection. Look at verses 9 through 12. Then they will deliver you to tribulation. Tribulation means a lot of suffering. It's the word that is used for the great tribulation, which we'll see an incredible acceleration of tribulation 
it'll make this lead up to the great tribulation look like a walk in the park. They will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. Wow, that's not very exciting, is it? Except for the fact, remember what Paul said when he was on death row? He said, for to me to live is Christ, but to die is what? Gain. Now we don't need to develop a death wish, but the other side of the coin is, we need to know when we, if we know Jesus, when we're out of here, praise God, we're free. And we have fulfilled God's purpose for our lives because the Bible says about David what he would say about each of us when God's purpose for David, plug your name in there, God's purpose for David when it was fulfilled for God's purpose in his generation, he fell asleep, went to be with the Lord. That's something for us to look up to. I announced something that I just found out about after the baptism today. One of our dear saints, Scotty Black, went to be with the Lord. And we, we miss her. But the last conversation I had for her was in the parking lot, probably about a month ago here. And she said, I just am ready to go home. She's home, home with the Lord, free from a body that racked her and made her way less than she really was in her heart. And the scripture tells us, they will deliver you to tribulation, will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And literally the word hated, it's, it, to translate it directly from the original language would be poor grammar, but this is what it really says will be being hated. The emphasis on Jesus was, this is going to be part and parcel of what's going to happen by all nations on account of my name. There will be defections, by the way, based upon persecution. Jesus warned his first set of disciples about following him. He said, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross daily. Those who first heard those words had a clear picture of what it meant to take up a cross. It meant to die and to suffer in a very significant way. We don't get to pick our form of suffering, but we will be persecuted if we follow Christ. That's what the Bible says. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to say, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me, for great is your reward in heaven, he says. So we see that a lot of people are going to fall away. And Jesus talks about this in the one parable that occurs in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the only parable. And he says that this parable is the most important of all his parables. And then he gives the reason why. Because it's about hearing the Word of God. And if we don't hear the Word of God, then we are of all people most to be pitied. And he talks about the sower, which represents himself. He talks about the seed, which is the word of God, slash the gospel. And how the sower goes out and just indiscriminately, dis discriminately puts his hand in his pouch with the seed and he's throwing it. And some falls on the road and the birds come and eat it up. The second soil is shallow soil and because the soil is shallow, there's a shell of, or a layer of limestone under it that's common in that part of the world. And what happens is it's maybe a few inches deep and that limestone gets the heat of the sun early in the day and it warms the soil up quickly. And when seed falls in that kind of soil, it's not uncommon for the seed to germinate, believe it, in one day, poke through the ground and before long, 
it looks like it's going to bear fruit, but because of the shallowness of it and the lack of moisture, that which caused it to grow up quickly also causes it to die quickly. So in a day it can die. And so that is the kind of hearer, Jesus says, who hears the gospel and embraces it with great joy. But then something happens. That something is persecution. And that persecution causes the person to walk away from the faith. Person probably, no probably about it, really had no true faith in the Lord because of that kind of attitude toward the Lord. Persecution does that to people. It's also due to false doctrine. Let's look again at verse 11. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Three times already in these two verses, Jesus has used the word many. Many will fall away, many false prophets, many will be led astray. So here again, we encounter false doctrine. False doctrine draws us away. And persecution is the main culprit perhaps, but false doctrine is a close second and it may vie for first in all this. But then he goes on to say in verse 12, and because the lawlessness is increased, and you say, well, Mike, I don't see the word the in front of lawlessness. Well, it's not there in our English translations, but it is there in the original language. And what that conveys is this is an extraordinary expression. It is the lawlessness. It, it would be set up at the top of the pyramid of lawlessness. And remember what John writes in 1 John chapter 3, sin is lawlessness. It's breaking the law of God. Do we live in a lawless time in our lives? We do. There had been a decline of crime in the last 10 or so years, crimes that are recorded by the FBI. But what did not show up and has not shown up is that there's been a corresponding increase in violent crime. But murders had gone down from the late 90s until COVID broke out. In 2020, it went up to a higher rate than when it was at its peak in the late 1990s. So lawlessness, if people don't abide by the law, chaos ensues, doesn't it? And we see that that can calls, it says, most peoples, it's the same word translated many, three times already in this immediate context, their love will grow cold. Love for whom? Well, love for God. In the book of Ecclesiastes, many of you are readers of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's full of wisdom. And you have read that verse, and I can't quote it verbatim, but it, essentially what it says, because the punishment for a crime is not exacted quickly, then people cut loose and they stretch the law and ignore the law. And people's love for God grows cold and the word really means freezes over. That's what the word really means. It grows cold and our love for each other also grows cold. So we see, do we not? the defections and the things that contribute. And the church is getting smaller. It's not just because of COVID. It's because as we move forward, people are going to feel the heat of being identified as a follower of Jesus Christ. And let me encourage you with this. Less can be better. That's hard for a preacher to say, pastor less can be better. Think about Gideon. How many men did he start out with? 32,000. God said, you got too many. And he said, okay, I'll do what you tell me. And what happened? 22,000 went home. He said, you still got too many. 
and I'm sure Gideon, who was a little skittish to begin with, he's really getting nervous now. He says, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? He told him what to do. And only 300 were left. You know what God loves to do? He loves to confound the foolish by the wise, rather, by using that which we would consider foolish. And he loves to confound the strong of this world by taking weak people who are committed to him to do his work. So I hope the church continues to grow numerically, provided people who are coming and making a profession of faith really know the Lord. This is a warning to us. Do we really know the Lord? And we want to know the Lord. Everybody is here. You wouldn't be here this morning if you didn't have some interest in knowing God. And we want to know him at the highest level so that we might not contribute to the demise of the world around us. We can do what is said in the last two verses. And this is really a new direction. The distribution of the gospel is what this is. Verse 13 says, but the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. Does this mean that we have to just say, I got to stick with it. I got to stick with it. I got to stick with it. Well, that's not bad if you know Jesus. But the reason we do endure to the end is because Christ has saved us. And we were created in Christ to do good works, which he had in mind for us from eternity past. And also in the book of Titus chapter two, this is beautiful. I'm not gonna quote the entire passage, but it simply says that he saves us, Christ saved us so that he would have a people zealous for good deeds, good works. Hanging in there and not simply surviving, but God wants us to thrive. And we know from a study of church history that the times that have been the darkest for the church in terms of persecution have been the times when there was most fruit born. I have several quotations, but I only have time for this one. This comes from the second century AD from the pen of a man named Justin Martyr. Now, Martyr was not his given name. It was his nickname because he suffered and do you know what the word witness sounds like in the New Testament language? Here's what it says, martyria. The word martyr comes directly for witness. It was assumed that if we are going to be witnesses for Christ, we're going to be persecuted. It's conveyed in that word, martyria. This is what he wrote. The greater the number of persecutions which are inflicted upon us, so much the greater the number of other men who become devout believers through the name of Jesus. One of his contemporaries, Tertullian, also in the second century AD said, every time you mow us down like grass, we increase in number. The blood of Christians is a seed. The blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. The Lord, somehow or another, he finds that which he has planted in us by his spirit, his presence. He gives us a boldness not to be brash and rude. We're never to be rude. We're to answer people. First Peter three fifteen says, with gentleness and respect, we should be of all people, the kindest people, but we're not to be afraid when it comes. And we're to do what the scripture says here in 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. That's when the end is gonna come, when the gospel has been distributed all over the world. Now let's go as we finish to chapter 21 of Luke. Luke 21. And let's see how Luke helps us to fill in some information that we don't have in Matthew's description of the, this part of the Olivet Discourse. He says, 
in verse 7, and they questioned him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See to it that you not be misled, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. When you hear the wars and rumors of wars, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued to say to them, and let's skip down to verse 12, but before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, being, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. Our following Christ will give us a ticket of admission before people of importance in the world's eyes that we would never have an audience with. That's what that's saying. I will lead, it will lead rather, that audience with these people who are powerful, an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. In other words, don't write out the script for that moment. For I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. Wonderful, isn't it? We just walk with the Lord. And we walk. And here's a final area of application. We're to not be tricked by false teachers. Don't be tricked. We're not to be terrified by all the disasters that we are seeing unfold about us. We're not to be disheartened by persecution, nor are we to retreat into a place of what we would think is a safe place. But we're to join the vanguard of people all over the world who know Christ and are not ashamed to be identified with Him not ashamed of the gospel, and we lay down our lives in obedience to him to help others in the world who would otherwise not hear the gospel to hear the gospel. Father, we thank you today for the word of God, and we thank you for the privilege of worshiping you together today. I ask, Lord, that you would work in all of our hearts. May the seed of the word of God be planted in all of our hearts and find good soil. We think about and ponder this, and we want to get ready, Lord. We don't want to be left behind. We want to be ready when you come for your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.